welcome to The Gardening Show on Radio Karam. Hi, everybody. Sorry for the slightly late start. 20 minutes late. 20 minutes late. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around. A little bit of a recap from last week, uh, last fortnight's episode. Um, but happy to be back. Yes. Welcome happy to back, be sitting Brendan. in the chair. Uh, it is good. It is good. Feeling good. Feeling well rested. A lot better. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm Brendan. You I'm are. Henry. I'm Henry. Awesome. We are the hosts of The Gardening Show on Radio Karam, and we are excited to be joining to, uh, you to talk about all things gardening and local food production. We are two local dads who share a passion for the garden, sustainability, growing food, giving it a go. Uh, we also help to run the Downs Community Farm, which is a budding non-for-profit just adjacent to the Seaford wetlands. And our mission is to promote and share the benefits of home gardening in our local community, um, we're going to be talking gardening in general, we'll put some tunes on and we'll be engaging with our listeners via um, texts uh, and hopefully in the coming weeks we'll have some interviews and guests as well. Yeah, got some people lined up. I haven't asked them yet but I've got a few people lined up. That's okay. We can coerce them yeah. to come on. I think it's <laughs> going to be great. <laughs> there's, there's lots of seats in this studio. so yeah, uh, should we start with an acknowledgement of country though? So sure. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are broadcasting today, the Bunurong Boomerang people of the Kulin Nations, and we want to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, uh, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So what did we dis- what did I discuss last week, Brendan? Were I, you listening? Were you paying attention? I, I was indeed. <laughs> I was indeed. Uh what did you go over? For what can I uh, let me sum it up if I can? Yeah, so those, please sort do. Of those points. We had some composting. We had some worm farms. Uh, we had permaculture principles about renewable resources and services. Mm. And uh, you obviously spoke a lot about the winter pruning. Yes, which was most excellent. I hope I did. I hope you did. I hope I did you okay there because those were your notes. No, it was great. I'm trying to like go through them and yeah. It was it was good. It was it was an experience. Yep. But I'm very glad to have you back. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> today, what are we talking about? So we've got uh, a pretty chunky one for you today. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about soil because mm. it all starts with soil. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about soil types, pH, contamination, things like that. Uh, we'll go into the sixth permaculture principle, which is produce no waste. Um, so you could probably guess what that's about. We're going to do a spotlight on uh, beets or beetroot and radishes. Excellent. Um, Very different plants, but very similar in the way that they can be grown Mm. in the garden. And we'll do a little bit of garden myth busting. Uh, Talk a bit about, you know, folklore and, uh, you know, commonly believed things Mm. that maybe aren't true. Maybe they are. You'll have to wait and see. Indeed. Good Mm. startup. Um, but yeah, don't forget though to send through any gardening questions to our uh, mobile here in the office, in the office, <laughs> in the studio, uh, 0493 um, If you have any burning questions or you just want to say good day. And we have uh, an official gardening show email address now. Um, we're not checking it tonight, but if you have any questions, throughout the week or the next coming weeks that you'd like us to answer in the next show, feel free to send us an email on thegardeningshowradio at gmail.com or one word, thegardeningshowradio at gmail.com. Brilliant. Uh, 
and a huge thank you, a huge thank you to you, Henry, uh, for doing such an awesome job last last episode. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I loved the composting discussion. Um, I loved the thoughts on the wormweed. Yeah. Um, the the vegetable lasagna con- uh, compost, mm. I think, is definite yes. Um, for guiding us through permaculture principles about the winter pruning, the advice there. Um, and also a huge thank you to, to everybody listening for sending in awesome questions, really great questions. So mm. keep them coming in and well done and appreciate it again, Henry. Thank you. And yes, thank you to everyone who wrote in. Uh, it made me feel a little bit less lonely uh, <laughs> with all these <laughs> all these texts coming in. Um, but yeah, let's. Uh, if you want to kick off, Brendan, tell us a bit about what we did on Saturday. Right. So we had a big dig down at the Downs. Um, we were doing a soil amendment day. Mm. So we've got a bit of a patch that we're looking to turn into a market garden. And one of those quadrants, what we're, what we're dealing with there is sandy loam and, Mm. um, very, very sandy, very sandy sandy loam. (laughs) And what we've noticed is that even just with the rains, it's really washed off that it's giving it almost a white sheen or that really Mm. light colored sheen of the sand coming through as it washes away that very first centimeter or so of topsoil. Yeah. Um, so we were looking at soil amendment and, a few of the strategies that we did. It was an awesome turnout. It was really mm. nice to have a lot of people down so there. I think it was our biggest one yet in total. Yeah, yeah. yep. And we we got in there, we distributed a whole bunch of hay um, and straw onto the ground mm. and we got some horse poo, some good horse compost mm. and uh, started to, to, to place that down and kind of fold it into the soil. Mm. And so really what we're looking for there is getting that organic matter back into the, into the soil yeah. uh, and to be staying strong and not just uh, seeping away. But it was a really great day. Happy to have everybody out there and we achieved a lot. Many hands makes light work. Yeah, I, it was it was. It was amazing how quickly we got it done. Mm. <laughs> so I thought we'd maybe get a little tiny part of it done. And we essentially covered a quarter of that space, yep. which is about a quarter acre in total. Mm. Um, <coughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, with hay. Uh, so it looks much more neat and purposeful. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in the coming, uh, you know, Saturday working bees and the next big dig in on the third Saturday of September. I couldn't tell you the exact date off the top of my head. Um, yeah, we'll continue to improve that. Mm, yep. Getting it ready for some vegetables. <coughs> oh, got a tickle in my throat. Sorry. It's always me no, no. <laughs> doing the coughing. All good. Um, yeah. Uh, you've written here that you had a, a nice, interesting visit on the weekend. Yeah. Tell us yeah. a bit about that. So I, I just popped down this one as a few recent garden visits because we uh, were fortunate enough to go out exploring um, my partner and I and our family, mm. ICOM. And we went and visited the Dandenong Rangers Botanic Gardens, nice. which is was actually really, really cool. First time I've been there, first time walking through the space. It is a really big space, mm. um, so definitely put on your hiking boots if you're, if you're walking through there. Uh, and some of it does go up and down a little bit. Yeah. But cool. specifically in relation to that, I just wanted to highlight the Chelsea uh, Garden uh, demonstration, demonstration's not the word, um, set up. There's been a garden <laughs> yeah. that's been created. Uh, and just to give a little blurb about that for those yeah. who are listening and may, may want to go and attend, um, in 2013, a gentleman by the name of Philip Johnson, Wes Flemings and the Tailfinders team, Australian Garden Display, uh, became the first ever Australian entry to win the Royal Horticultural Society's Chelsea Flower Show. Ooh. 
The display was toured by the Queen and Prince Harry and was unanimously voted best uh, best in show by the judges. Now visitors can experience this stunning design through a recreation of the display at 20 times the size of the original. Uh, it's located within the Dandenong <laughs> Rangers Botanic Gardens, the Chelsea Australian Garden at Belinda is a permanent display uh, featuring an enormous Waratah sculpture, waterfall and billabong. Over 15,000 plants have been used in the design with o- over 400 different Australian species, which is wow, pretty cool. That's awesome. So I definitely want to go there. I'm yeah. a big botanic garden guy. <laughs> um, what I really loved about going through the botanic gardens was seeing we're, we're still in winter. So mm. we haven't got lots of budding sort of stuff happening yeah. just yet. I'm sure we'll, we'll be looking at spring just around the corner as we start to see some of those cherry blossoms open up um, mm. now. But looking at winter is a really great time to see the frame, the frames and the skeletons and the bones of the garden and the trees and the shapes that the trees make. It was really cool. Um, gave it a different sort of feel. Whilst it may not have been all flowers and all leaves and foliage yeah. and things, it was still a different space and um, it was really nice, really nice. That's awesome. I think a good a good garden design does take that into account because, hmm. you know, gardens don't look great a lot of the time. <laughs> so if you can sort of plan for that hmm. in your design when things are, you know, missing leaves, um, yeah, you can always have something that looks nice. There were some great daffodils out and mm. what oh, – uh, my my partner will will be telling me the name in out loud right now, yeah. but it was the early cheer, the daffodil, the small the small creamy coloured daffodil. It doesn't uh, have yep. it's not the big yellow bright one. It's not the white one with the yellow on the inside. Mm. It was just the creamy one, and it's a something cheer. Uh, and the fragrance on those is amazing. Wow! So that's out right now. Uh, in addition to that, we also visited Cloud Hill, which is, of course, the Diggers Club. Yeah. And it's always good to go up and top up on, yeah, on some course. heirloom seeds. <laughs> and lastly, we, we went and visited a place called Allowen Gardens, which is in Yarra Valley. It's heading up that way on the Melbourne Highway. And that was just a really, really cool place to check out and explore. We It's got uh, a gorgeous wisteria tunnel awesome. Uh, where they hold ceremonies and weddings and things like that. It has a French provincial garden, which is fully manicured and it's, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's really picturesque. It would be a lovely place to take photos or to go and have a picnic or to spend the day just exploring. Yeah. Um, they've got a birch forest with almost like this understory of, of fairy flowers and, um, and there was a new flower that I found the other day. I asked one of the ladies, Prue, there. Uh, it was a Hellebora. Uh, and Helleborus, yeah. Mm. That's a, that's, there's some cool flowers in that family. Mm. And yeah. it was sitting, just this little one in the understory, uh, and it looked very much like a fairy, an enchanted fairy garden yeah, feel right. to it. Uh, what else did they have? They had uh, the cloud garden. They had a wildfire, uh, a wildflower quadrant, mm. uh, a huge kitchen garden and a perennial kitchen garden as well. Um, and pumpkins and gourds on display. It was, it's really cool. It was a great place. It was right up my alley. And there was very much a nursery there as well. And it had plenty and plenty of different things to buy. Oh, that's great. I, yeah, I, I find with those sorts of places, um, my partner might not agree with me, but I could be there just walking around, nerding out on plants all day. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> yep. Stop, to the point where it's annoying. I'll be like, Oh, we have to stop and look at this one. Oh, hold on. Let's yep. look at this one. And 
even just the, the boring plants, so yep. to speak. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> I'm ready. One of the cool things was the the birds, the bird life that was around. Mm. It was they were. There were we saw a honey eater. We saw some other really small flowering like, uh, birds and things like this. And it was just it was really lovely. So when's fully the, recommend. When's the, when's the bird watching radio show coming? I don't know. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I joke. Uh, but a shout out to Prue and John, who are the uh, the who run Alwyn Gardens. And, oh, great! And really, really lovely. So highly recommend going and visiting. I'll put it on my list. Where did I go? What well, wasn't? that eventful but i did go to karanga with a k karanga native nursery mm-hmm. uh in mount evelyn it's also up in the dandenongs uh on sunday and wow let me tell you if you are looking for natives mm-hmm. um go <laughs> go check it out i i'm i'm constantly surprised by australian natives and how little I actually know about them mm. because, you know, there's all the normal ones that you think of, you know, your kangaroo paws and your leptospernums and all that sort of stuff. And then you go there and there's just, I mean, there must have been a thousand different varieties mm. just of flowering natives. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I left having spent quite a bit of money because <laughs> uh, I'm building a sort of wildlife habitat garden mm-hmm. in the front yard. Uh, so I got lots of really interesting flowering natives um, and some bush food as well. So I got some, the sort of round, uh, the, the native mints. There's uh-huh. quite a few of them. So I got a round leaf one, which I think is known as native thyme. Mm-hmm. Um, and a cut leaf one, which is like native oregano, I think. Maybe that's the other way around. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, and what else? Uh, a native basil which I'd never seen before. Cool. It looks like basil. Um, even the flowers look like basil. It has a really interesting sort of a mix of, not flavor, I didn't try any, but I smelled it, uh, like a mix of mint and basil and sage kind of a flavor. Okay. Really cool. Uh, and then, yeah, a bunch of um, really interesting, you know, wildflowers, I suppose they are. They're yep. all wildflowers. And I guess my... <laughs> What I want for the front garden, I've always wanted a really like a rambling English cottage garden, mm-hmm. but I want it to be entirely natives, but still have that same feel. Yep. And after going to this place, uh, I feel like I can do it. Nice. Because every possible cottage flower you can think of, so you know, your foxgloves, mm. you know, whatever it might be, uh, there's a native that can fill that space, Yeah. I find. Yep. And a lot of people don't know that, you know. So next time you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'd love to get insert ornamental, uh, you know. Classic English. Classic English flower of some kind or ground cover or shrub. Mm. Uh, go to a native nursery and I guarantee if it's a big one that's well stocked like Karanga, uh, you'll probably find a pretty good substitute. Mm. So there's my uh, there's my recommendation. It's a good strategy. <laughs> it's a really good strategy actually. Yeah. And admittedly, uh, I, I don't find that I've got a huge confidence in my own ability when it comes to natives and those sorts of things. So I think it's really good to look outside. It's a little bit looking outside the box in some ways. Mm. A lot of people think that's just totally common sense and it's what they already do. But no, it's really good. Great that's insight. It. Thank you, Henry. I will actually add one little point there. They've got a little section there that is very specifically um, plants that are indigenous to the Melbourne area. Mm-hmm. So if you are struggling with your soil type, and we will go into soil amendment. Don't worry about that uh, in the next section. But 
if you are struggling with a very heavy sand soil or, you know, a heavy clay, mm. depending on where you might be in Melbourne or sort of swampy soil, there's probably a plant that – a native plant that's totally happy in that environment mm. and has in fact evolved in that environment. So just some food for thought. But before we get into the wonderful world of soil, let's uh, go to a song. So this one is called Apricot Sun. Still keeping it going I with the it. plant names. Um, <laughs> Apricot and Sun. I got yep. them both in this one. That was double up. There you go. Apricot <laughs> Sun by Lily Karen. Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Karen. Stay tuned. And we're back. Go the Tillies. That's great. I love that we have a station ID now from a Matilda alumni. It's brilliant. That's awesome. That will be on every show. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, once again, that was Lily Karen, C A R O N, in case you're interested, uh, with her song Apricot Sun. Soil. Soil. The big brown elephant in the room. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah. Tell us yeah. a bit about it. Yeah, for sure. So we, we all want healthy soil. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I, I was thinking about this the other day and I was thinking about the soil being another sort of a bioplant. Yeah. And, and what I mean by bioplant is, is almost like a power plant. Yeah. Um, uh, bioplants, compost, worm farms, bees, biofuel reactors yeah. as well. I keep going, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and solar, mm. uh, just a couple of examples. So what I like to think about this, and we were talking, or you, got, you were talking about worm farms a fortnight ago, um, is that this is like a little micro power plant inside of your house totally. or inside of your property. Uh, really, it's, it's just nature. <laughs> and it's yeah. just what nature <laughs> does. Um, uh, we can absolutely think about it as a little ecosystem uh, of soil and, and something else that we want to maintain in our garden. Um, important to identify what your soil needs and amending to suit if needed. Mm. Tell I, us more. Yeah, well, I love what you said there about we need to maintain it in our garden. Mm. Uh, the way the way that I see gardening is you're not you're not growing plants. Plants they just grow. Yeah, right. Yep, they yep. don't need humans. You are cultivating soil. That's what you're doing. Okay. And you're doing that in a way that is going to ensure that plants can be their best selves. Yep. And I've always thought about – when I started to think about it that way, my gardening got better. When I started to put all my energy and effort into my soil, mm. you know. But, yeah, I mean, what is soil? You know, I think people confuse it with the term dirt. Mm-hmm. And I think dirt is something you clean off the bottom of your shoes. <coughs> soil is, as you said, it's a living thing. Um, so what does soil actually consist of? It's approximately, <coughs> sorry, my goodness, um, 45% minerals or mineral content, 5% organic matter, 20 to 30% water and 20 to 30% air. And I think it's really important that air one, mm. you know, when there's a lack of air in the soil, that's really bad. When there's lack of water in the soil, of course, nothing grows. So those are really important components. And interestingly, um, organic matter is only 5%, which is, you know, weird to think about because I'm constantly adding compost to my soil. Yep. Um, but that's really what it boils down to in terms of like a per weight volume. Right. You know? Um, but yeah, 
Where it, are we? It, it's interesting as well because we're going we're gonna to talk about um, in a few minutes the particle sizes as well yeah. and, and what the difference does that makes to air and the amount of air that can be sitting in the soil. So it's really That's interesting, exactly that right. little point. Yeah. Where are we? Where are we right now? We're in Karim. We're in the Mornington Peninsula. We are Bayside. Um, if people are familiar, we have sand quarries behind Frank- Frankston, yep. Sky Sands. Um, we have a green wedge zone, farm zone, which is still current farm, farmland. And so that's kind of looking at the back of Lang Warren, mm. um, all, all through the back and along the freeway. Yep. Um, we, we're in a green wedge. Uh, yep, sorry, still current farmland. We've got lots of sandy loam. Yeah. Uh, it is great for golf courses. <laughs> As someone that plays golf occasionally, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, might need some help in the veggie garden. Yeah. <laughs> it will allow water to flow through. Um, sand can also be hydrophobic, which mm. means it can also repel water. Yeah. And so if you have ever noticed in the garden, especially with very sandy soil, you can pour, you can water straight onto the soil pop your finger down and like Milo, uh, one centimetre yeah. down and it's totally dry. <laughs> like Milo, that's like a good way Milo. to put it. It's interesting actually about um, sort of hydrophobic, Not, I'm not sure about sand, but hydropo- hydrophobic soil. When you let soil, your soil get too dry mm. and it becomes hydrophobic. I, was try- I looked up, I wanted to know why. It didn't make sense to me. Why would that be the case? And I believe from what I read, it's a fungus in the soil, or the funguses in the soil, the fungi in the soil, create a protective barrier, like a waxy protective barrier mm. around their cells to help them conserve water mm. but repels water off of them. Fascinating. There you go. Interesting. Some soil scientist or a mycologist can correct me on that, but that's what I read on the internet, so it must be true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Excellent. Uh, Yeah, well, another thing that we, you know, as you mentioned, we have very sandy soils around here, but um, if you look at a soil map, and I do encourage our listeners to look up a soil map of of Melbourne, um, and you'll see it's quite interesting to see um, how different soils are across just the Melbourne metropolitan area. Mm. They've got volcanic soils a bit further north, um, you've got very beautiful, like loamy um, alluvial plain. So sort of like, you know, the mouth of a river creek kind of area. And forgive me because I didn't grow up in Victoria. So, you know, the sort of spot between Melbourne and Geelong, that area. Yep, Werribee. Werribee, thank you. The Werribee yep. Plains. There you go. That's the one. Yep. Um, so really beautiful farmland there. And then down this way, you've got... Uh, You've got a bit of a mix down here. You've got that sandy soil, but you also have um, a swampy soils, mm, yep. right? From the Karam Karam, this was obviously a swamp area. It was, yeah. Back in the day. So, um, yeah, lots very heavy in clay and silt in those areas. So it's almost like we've got the worst of both worlds. We've got <laughs> heavy clay sort of uh, swampy soils and we've got very sandy soils. Mm. And obviously for gardening, you want something that has a nice mix of both in the middle. But yeah, I was looking at I was looking at something else actually around mm. soil, and according to the Australian Plant Society of Victoria, loam uh, often found where market gardens were once established. Mm. Uh, much of southeast Melbourne consists of these soils. They have good drainage while retaining some moisture and allowing plant, plant roots to easily penetrate downwards. Mm. Many native plants are easily grown in these soils as well. So. 
Really interesting. Weird, an interesting snap snapshot of not weird. Uh, an interesting snapshot of soils around around this area yeah. and around Melbourne. Um, so soil and relative particle sizes. Essentially, soils are usually classified as gravel, sand, sandy loam, loam, clay loam, or clay. And that's going to be going up from gravel being your big, big, big chunky rocks mm. down to clay being the tiny, 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 tiny flecks of of um, uh, of minerals. Minerals, yeah, yeah. Gravel or sand. Um, uh, a simple method to determine soil type is to take a slightly moist sample in your hand and just give it a good squeeze. Give it a squeeze, yeah. Uh, and see what happens. Gravel or sand um, fails to compact. It will run through your fingers. Loam, it will complex, compact slightly, but um, still fragments will fall through your fingers. And then clay, you can just hold it as a solid mass. Yeah. Yeah. And that's – I think that's – loam is great. Uh, you know when you have good soil. Obviously, the colour is quite dark and rich. Yep. Whereas clays can be – they can be grey, they can be yellow, <laughs> you know, they can be almost like terracotta coloured. Um, with loam, yeah, that when it compacts and then it sort of crumbles, mm. like a crumbly biscuit texture is the way I would put it, that's the good stuff. That's mm-hmm. what you want. Um, so how do you amend soils? Now, if you there's, there's a few things you can do, of course, and there are many solutions that you can purchase. Um, so if you're... Sand is uh, if your sand well if your soil is sand mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially you you have a sandy garden. Um, some people would think you can add small amounts of clay, something like a benzonite clay. I would I would say no, that's not a good idea. And the reason for that is it does not take much clay to create a heavy clay soil. Mm. So if you think if you look it up, you can you can look it up. So soil triangle. Maybe search that, it should come up. You have a triangle with, in each of the three corners, one has sand, one has clay, and one has, I believe it's silt or loam. One of the two, but anyway. And it sort of gives you an an idea of where all the different soil types fit relative in that triangle based on the proportions of those three things that they have. Mm, And what you will find when you look at this is that a huge chunk of that triangle is a is, is a clay soil of some of some sort, and what that means really is that it doesn't take much clay to swing it in the direction of a clay soil. Mm. So adding clay to to sand not the best idea. There is something you can do to it though, of course, and we'll get to that. But if your soil is on the other end of the spectrum and it's too high in clay, uh, the common thing you would do is add gypsum mm-hmm. um, in small amounts. It is worth noting that this does not work for all types of clay. So there is a test you can do, and forgive me, I didn't do my research well enough on this one, or I forgot my notes, I'll say. Um, but you can do a test where you put a little bit of this clay in a dish and put some water on it and sort of see how much it spreads out. Okay, yeah. And whether it creates a certain shape or gets to a certain size, can tell you the type of clay that it is. So do your research and figure out what clay do I have. Some will react totally well with gypsum and some won't. So it's worth knowing before you start adding stuff to your garden for no reason. Um, so what is the answer though? I mean, what, what's the best answer for for fixing either a- Too high in sand. Too high in sand, too high in clay. The answer is always the same. Add organic matter. Add organic matter. I can't tell you anymore. 
you can also do things like plant um, plant things that have a strong taproot. Mm-hmm. They can help to break up that clay. You can obviously till, um, lightly till to sort of just allow things to penetrate into it, like air and water, to get your plants started. But the best way to amend any soil is to take the slow and steady approach, add organic matter, and over time, build your soil. Mm. Um, The other methods are a bit too easy to screw up, I find. And then you end up with the other problem. Yeah. You know? Um, Yeah. So So that's like take a little bit too easy to get it possibly to get it wrong a little bit or not to get the desired outcome you might want if you're trying to go in and amend it um, with lots of different uh, neutralizers or or acids and things. That's it. But I, I will say, you know, for certain types of clay, gypsum is a good idea. If I had if I had to encourage anyone to buy one product mm-hmm. that can really fix soil, it is gypsum for certain types of clay. It can do a good job. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Spot science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, potential of hydrogen or power of hydrogen. Power of hydrogen, also known as I added that in there. <laughs> uh, is what we call pH. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure we've all heard of pH in the past. Um what is that? It is actually uh, the pH of the soil is indicated by the activity of hydrogen ions in a solution. Acidic solutions have a high concentration while alkaline uh, or basic solutions have a lower one. Uh, and so you mentioned here actually pH, it's a logarithmic. Yeah, so um, yeah, pH is, is an interesting one. I didn't realise we were doing a chemistry show. <laughs> yeah, we <got> <laughs> Get your on biological sciences. Yeah. It's brilliant. Um, but yeah, pH is a logarithmic scale. What does that mean? That's a big science word. Uh, basically, it means that – so the, the, the pH scale is a number from 1 to 14, mm-hmm. 1 being pure melt-your-face-off acid. Mm-hmm. Hydrochloric acid. <laughs> Hydrochloric acid. Uh, and uh, 14 being, you know, incredibly – which also would also burn you. Um, sodium hydroxide or – yeah. Something along those lines. So each of those numbers – is 10 times more than the number before it. Mm. So you might think if you test your soil and you get a pH of 6, right, which is on the acidic side of the scale, 7 of course being neutral, you might think, oh, well, 6 isn't that bad. You know, it's just one number under 7. It's 10 times more acidic than than 7. So you've got to really take this into account. Uh, Fractions of a number are really important when it comes to the acidity of your soil. Right. Uh, it is important to note uh, that different plants c- can access certain nutrients, so your macronutrients and your micronutrients, only when that pH is within a certain range. And you can look this up. There's plenty of tables where you will see the ideal range and then the sort of range at which they can take up some nutrient. Mm-hmm. And then at certain pHs, that just gets cut off completely. So if that's the case... What do we do? Uh, well, the good thing is that neutral soil, so a pH of seven, is pretty much good for most things. There are some exceptions to that. Plants that do prefer you know, slightly more acidic soil, uh, things like magnolias or blueberries or whatever it might be. But generally speaking, neutral is the way to go. And kind of falling back to the previous show about worm farms, uh, the great thing about... Um, you know, worm worm castings, worm poo, is that it is a pH neutral uh, fertilizer. Worms 
do not like, as you said, like heavily acidic things. Yep. They actually neutralize soil and create a perfectly balanced, um, you know, in a pH sense, perfectly balanced fertilizer. So, yeah, what do you do if you have a plant that is loving of acidic soils? Let's say you want to grow blueberries. Yep. I would encourage you to grow that in a pot or to have maybe a garden bed that is like your acid bed. Mm. Um and just keep them separate because it's very hard to have two plants right next to each other and try and make one of them, the soil around one of them a little bit more acidic and mm. that doesn't really work that way. Yeah. Very interesting. And the funny thing was that potential of hydrogen, I didn't. I always knew pH, I always knew it was to do with more acidic and less acidic mm. or more basic um, and, and the differences there but potential of hydrogen, there you go. Yeah. Um, listening to your soil. What's your soil telling you? <laughs> mine, mine says, help, I need more organic matter. <laughs> That's what most people's soils tell them. Please keep me more moist and give me more organic matter. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, pro tip, it always needs more organic matter. Yep. That's the way to fix 90% of problems in the garden. So something that you can do if you wanted to test out your soil is uh, we, we spoke about pH and what mm. it is, but you can actually get a pH indicator kit from your or a testing kit from any any local nursery. Mm. Um, follow the instructions, read your results. Basically, it's just going to be putting it in a little bit of solution and then dripping it down onto a, uh, a bit of litmus paper or indicator paper and it will come up with a different colour that shows on the scale of acidic to basic how how strong the the acid is yeah and it's a good idea um is to test different parts of your garden uh and if you can be bothered um different depths in your garden you may find that your topsoil is you know nicely neutral and then your sort of subsoil is highly acidic Mm. right so you know there's it's good to get the more data you have the better but yeah i mean it takes i've done so many ph tests it takes like five minutes, not yeah. it, not even. No, it takes no. like a minute, two minutes, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's super easy. A little bit of liquid, a little bit of powder, you know, you get a little card with the colours. It's it's fun. Yep. Um, so anyway, I talked before about how to amend different types of soil. How do you amend uh, soils that are too acidic or too, too alkaline or too basic, you can yep. say. So if your soil is too acidic, what you want to do is add lime. And there's different kinds of lime, you know, dolomite lime and all these sorts of things. So it's good to really do a bit of research on what type of lime is going to work best for your situation because some types will add other nutrients into your soil. I can't remember again, I can't remember what kind it is, but one type of soil can one type of lime can throw out the amount of I think it's magnesium in your garden. So it's good to just do a bit of research there. Yep. Um, the good thing about acidic soils is fixing them doesn't take too long. So adding a bit of lime, it'll take about six months to change the pH um, one one point in the sort of alkaline direction towards neutral. But like with all amendments, go easy, go slow, do a little bit at a time because if you go too hard with that mm. and your soil now becomes too alkaline, yes, you can add uh, elemental sulfur. Um, that, that's what you would use for that. But a note, that takes way longer. So it's much more easy to alkalize your soil than it is to acidify your soil. Did you know this? No. No. So, so it, wait. Can, it can take up to six years to move your soil in the acidic direction 
just by adding sulfur, I'm saying, right? Yep. Um, by one point. So if you want to take your soil from 7.5 to 6.5, mm-hmm. for example, it can take, I think it's between five and eight years, depending Wow. by using sulfur. So if that is the case, it might be more worth your, your trouble to just remove that soil and start again with a fresh mix of soil mm. or maybe just switch up what you're putting in that bed. Just say, you know what? I'm going to um, put in some plants that are prefer alkaline soils yep. for a while and amend it over time. Plant to suit the area. Exactly. Keep it simple. Very, I like very it. Very permaculture on that one. Uh, but yeah, that, I like that's, it. that's uh, Professor Henry's pH <laughs> <laughs> amendment uh, lesson. No, it was excellent. And to be honest, the 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 time frames about soil amendments and, and how long it would take is something that I wasn't familiar with. So it's really good to know. Um, a quick a quick point, just finishing this one off and wrapping up soil for the time being. We want to think about it like it is. Well, it is. We want to think about it as a living bio plant and uh, to keep it happy, to keep it maintained, to allow it to give our plants the best chance to do what they need to do. Uh, if you find earthworms and grubs in your garden. It's a good sign. You're doing all right. You're doing well. <laughs> um, and point in of note, we kind of spoke about this before, but soils in your potted plants uh, does create a closed environment and they may need some additional care or amending or um, topping up or swapping over every every year or two. There we go. Sh- shall we jump into a song? I think we should because, to be honest, we could probably do a whole five-hour show just on soil. I think we could. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone would listen. So <laughs> let's go to a song. This one is by The War on Drugs and it is something that we all love, uh, Occasional Rain. Hi, everybody. This is Wit from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisce about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to... Radio Karen and get down with the good vibes. Excellent. Welcome back to the gardening show on Radio Karen. I'm Brendan. And, and I'm Henry. <laughs> Excellent. Um, one, just whilst we were on our break, I was having a quick look through some of the text and I did find a text from a little while ago, back in August, uh, early August. And I hope this is for our show, but I'm going to assume that it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, we are only getting it to, to it now. <laughs> and it says, I reckon a good subject to cover would be soil architecture, i.e. dealing with sandy or clay soils, tilling versus non-tilling, the importance of microbes and mycelia. Thanks and great. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. Well, we touched on a little bit of that. Yeah. But we, I think we should do a soils part two. I think so. Yeah, definitely. And touch on some of those other things because it is, yeah, it's a huge subject. You can literally be a soil scientist and that is your entire job. Yep. So, yep. yeah. Thank you very much, listener. What was the name on that one? Do Dave. One? Dave. Thank that you, was. Dave. Thank you, Dave. And please, please correct me if I was wrong on anything that I just rambled on before <laughs> <laughs> about soils. Um, but that being said, don't forget to send through any and gardening questions mm. on 0493 213 831 and we'll be ha- glad to give it a go. Um, or you can email us at thegardeningshowradio at gmail.com. Yeah, I tried to do thegardeningshow at gmail.com, but that was taken. That was so taken. We chucked a radio onto that one. <laughs> so that's easy to remember. Uh, once again, though, that song was Occasional Rain by The War on Drugs. Let's get into permaculture. So 
Permaculture principle six is produce no waste. Yes. Now, this is a nice point at which to um, – well, there's 12 permaculture principles. I think the first six are all very interrelated, very similar, very you know, common sense, mm-hmm. uh, I would say. And this is the last one of those. The next six are a little bit different. They are the not-so-obvious ones. Okay. So I'm very excited to get into that. But this one is very important, produce no waste. So a quote I gave a couple of weeks ago, um, a couple of shows ago even, was nature produces no waste. I think humans are the only part of nature that produces waste and huge volumes of it. (laughs) So this is about uh, moving towards being like the rest of nature. So this emphasizes minimizing waste, of course, and utilizing resources efficiently. That's the word there, efficiently, in order to create a more sustainable and harmonious ecosystem uh, or garden or life. Mm -hmm. So there's a few things that kind of tie into this. Minimizing waste. So I think everyone's heard of the four R's, right? The reduce, repair, reuse, and recycle. recycle. Yes. That's it. And yeah, I mean- that's that's really we can just end it there. That's yep. that's it. Just do those four things, and you will produce maybe less waste, maybe not no waste. Um, but that's something that you can apply to every part of the garden, whether it's how you build your garden beds, um, you know, the rainwater collection system you implement. Um, you know, perhaps you have some irrigation. You know, there's always a way to do that that doesn't involve buying new stuff. Yep, and uh, buying stuff isn't the issue. It's the packaging and all that stuff that ends up becoming the waste. Yeah, yep. that we want to avoid using resources efficiently. So, what we want to be doing is maximizing the productivity of our resources. So, what that boils down to is finding as many uses as possible for something and extending its life cycle. Okay. So, when something gets used to the point where it doesn't really fit its original purpose, is there something else that you can use it for? And how many times can you do that? And if you sit down and think about it, you'd be surprised, right? So it might be, oh, I don't know. Let's take, um, yeah, you, uh, eggs. I mentioned egg cartons last week or the week before. So, yeah, they hold eggs. That's great. Uh, Maybe you want to keep using them to hold eggs from your chicken coop. So you just keep reusing the same one. And then it maybe gets to the point where you're like, I don't feel like this can hold eggs very well anymore. It's a bit ratty. It's a bit whatever. Maybe then you can pot seedlings into it. And then use that a few times for that. And then maybe it's not good for that anymore. So it can go into your compost. And you've extended the life of a humble egg carton well beyond what it was intended for. The big one though for me is creating closed loop systems. So have you heard of closed loop systems, Brendan? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much what it means is Designing a system or a garden where the outputs of one element of your garden Mm -hmm. uh, are the inputs of another. Mm, So things things are sort of moving around and being used and sort of trying to daisy chain as many of those as possible. And there's a few other things we've touched on before, so I won't go into too much more detail, but things like obviously composting and mulching, um, you know, help to reduce the need for external inputs Mm. and therefore waste outputs and plant diversity. So if you select a variety of plants that complement each other, you're enhancing the resilience of your system and your garden 
And that, again, reduces the need for external inputs Hmm. that come with their own waste products often. So what are some practical examples for the home garden on how to implement this producing no waste uh, principle? So grey water recycling is a good one. So, of course, uh, that's a really big waste product from a home is the water that obviously leaves from sinks or showers or baths. And as long as you are careful with the sorts of, you know, soaps and products like that that you use, you can absolutely, uh, if your budget allows for or you are willing to do something very DIY in a bit, who knows, uh, you can totally use that to water your garden. Yep. Uh, One simple very simple solution uh it's definitely not for everybody is you know those kind of flexible rubber buckets yep with yep. the handles the molded ones uh, i know some people in the permaculture world that have one of those permanently in their shower yeah they stand inside of it okay and have their shower no issue and then they use that water take it out into the garden so you know that that's a one way to do it hugel culture beds Hugel culture, yes. So this is something I absolutely love. A great way to um, to build beds in general, but uh, a great way to fill tall garden beds. Mm-hmm. Soil is expensive and filling a garden bed with soil is hard yakka. <laughs> yeah. Um, what Hugel culture, Hugel culture is, is basically just uh, layering organic material from the biggest, chunkiest type up to the to soil essentially so you might start with logs mm-hmm. a big layer of logs then your branches then some you know leaf litter then some compost then soil and you know a mix of the both and you just kind of layer it up it will sink over time of course but as it all breaks down you'll create a really nice soil so you get the airflow in there it's good use for things like logs and branches maybe discarded wood that's fallen off a tree on the property if you've got large big trees instead Mm. of just you know burning it off or you know giving it away um you you can use it even even big chunky bits of wood uh yeah things of course that we've talked about before like seed saving uh you know chickens and compost worms these are all ways to reduce waste one that i love is repurposing materials so a little example from my garden is uh, I've just built, almost finished uh, a chicken coop and I built almost the entire thing from junk wood that got pulled out of my old deck that was rebuilt, which, yeah, was a bit tricky. <laughs> nothing was straight. Nothing was the same size. But if you're willing to, you know, get a bit hands-on DIY, um, there's no need to go out and buy a chicken coop, you know, or go out and buy a garden bed. Use what you have. So, yeah. Um, Brendan, you've mm. got a contribution and a goal. I do. I do. Uh, finally, I, I feel like I can you can bring into the, yes. the, <laughs> the conversation. And, um, again, thank you, Henry, for taking us through all the different um, phases and steps of permaculture principles up until where we are now. And so, the contribution and goal here, I... It, it totally feel like it leads back to common sense mm-hmm. and working with nature um, and ha- harnessing what nature naturally wants to do. Yeah. Um, well, my goal has been to reuse or to put back all the stuff I was trimming away. Yeah. So anything green, anything that I was doing in the garden. And essentially the goal was to not put stuff into the green bin if I didn't have to. Yeah. 
Um, so this was lawn clippings, small branches, twigs, food waste, those sorts of things. And essentially not giving away that biomass that has got the potential to go back into my garden. Um, while we aren't fully at that household waste level of reduction, uh, this is one that I feel like for the most part I'm getting on top of. Yeah, <clears throat> And it also reduces the amount that I have to bring in for things like compost and fertilizers. Mm. And one of the ones that I'm particularly focusing on as well is um, weed, weed tea, essentially. Yep. So specifically for the grasses that I may not want to throw into my fertilizer, uh, sorry, into my compost mm. to try because of, of the seeds and stuff. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yep. To try and turn that one into a, an, a liquid fertilizer mm. of some sort. So yeah, my, my thought is I, uh, I want to see if I can keep everything that I'm producing, all that biomass to go back into the garden and not into the green bin. Noble. A great, great thing to do. I'm really glad you're doing that. Um, yeah, again, you don't have to be perfect. Permaculture is not the answer to everything. Mm-hmm. It's not about perfection. It's about doing little bits here and there, doing what you can. Doing what you can. And if, every, like. if everyone did what they could without, you know, stressing themselves out or going beyond what they felt was comfortable, that would fix so many of the issues hmm. in the world already, you know. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned the green bin. So that is a goal of mine as well is I want to get to the point where I never – use my green bin Mm. and there's quite a few permaculturalists out there who have taken the real extreme thing which is to either well you can't really give your green bin back to the council they won't take it but to just permanently change their green bin to something else so using it as a rainwater collection container yeah using it to store browns for their compost uh using it to um make weed teas Totally. So just keeping it in the backyard and just using it as a big vessel. Cool. So it's never out the front with the rubbish. You couldn't put things in there if you wanted to. Yep. <laughs> and it kind of forces you to to think about what you're what you're doing. You know. But again, that's not for everybody. So just an idea. I I actually really liked what you spoke about just a moment ago, and not giving yourself too many added stresses. Yeah. Um, and one of the things is you know we can take gardening as little or to, to as, as, as little extreme or as big an extreme as we want to we can delve as deep or as shallow as we want to we can you can you can go to the nth degree on on everything and look into it in super detail but we don't also have to um, and just keeping doing what you can do we don't want to add more stress we want to be having it as an outlet often for for gardening um, and looking at just reflecting back to your uh, your chicken coop, I did have a pic- see the picture of it before, and it is a palace. It is looking amazing. <laughs> there are some lucky chickens when they come. <laughs> I do tend to go a bit overboard <laughs> with things like that, but it does look brilliant. It looks really impressive. So thank again, you. Well done, Henry. We'll, def- we'll definitely touch on not just, not just chickens, but uh, the role that animals have to play in the garden. Mm. Um, pets. Sure, but then things like chickens or quail, if you have the space, a goat, yep, rabbits. You know, there's a lot to talk about there in, in the gardening context. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure you know when we're old and grey and retired, we'll have plenty of time to get real deep on some of this stuff. Yep, and get like real, get real weird with it. But uh, for now, you know, do what you can. Episode one thousand four hundred. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. Just how much can you permaculture? <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. So um, I guess here's the activity for this fortnight's permaculture um, 
homework, let's call it. This is something I actually did as part of my course and it's a really great activity. Uh, we touched on it before about inputs and outputs. So again, in your garden journal that you should have, uh, you're going to write out all the elements that your garden has. It can be really granular, but let's just take every individual element. So that could be like chickens, mm-hmm. lemon tree, uh, asparagus bed, worm farm, you know, take your pick. And for each one of them, there's going to be a list of inputs and outputs. And if you're having trouble figuring that out, you you can search on Google. You'll find chicken input, output, plenty of permaculture pictures. Mm-hmm. So for chickens, input will be, you know, feed. It'll be, you know, the gravelly stuff they got to eat every now and again to like help them digest. Like you know. a calcium grit. Or yeah, something. grit, grit. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. And, and a calcium source as well. So it might be you know, crushed up oyster shells or whatever. Um yeah, water, for example. And then there are outputs. Oh, and shade would be another one for chickens as well. That's an important one. Think outside the box, right? Mm-hmm. Think every little thing that they need. And then what are the outputs? You know, eggs, of course. Uh, in your context, it might be meat. Uh, you know, obviously chicken poo. Yeah, feathers even if they're dropping feathers. Uh, there's, you know, everything. List it all out. Do that for every single element of your garden and then see where there is overlap. Mm. Right, plants need fertilizer, chickens produce fertilizer. The easy example there. Uh, but, you know, shade is one. So if chickens need shade. Well, perhaps you are thinking of planting some fruit trees. Maybe you want to plant them near the chickens mm. to give them that shade. And if you start to do that, see how big you can get. See how much you can close the loops. And hopefully have some elements that totally work with each other and need no external inputs. Yeah, I've got. I've, I'm, I'm envisaging it in my head. I've got this little vision. Do a mind map. Um, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and it's kind of it's got those connected lines bouncing off of each other as to you know what affects what and all of those. Yeah, sorts of that's things. a great way to do it. I've seen some really nice pictures. Again, I'm just looking at it online. You know, if you write permaculture inputs outputs mind map or something, search something like that, you will see some big nice mind maps that people have done of their garden with all the elements and then just arrows going from one to the other. Mm, rock and roll. And then put your inputs and your outputs that are external and figure out how you might be able to reduce those. So there you go. There's your homework. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's it. I, again, this, like I said, this is very self-explanatory stuff. Mm-hmm. Next week, we're going to go into uh, the, the back six, let's call them, um, of the permaculture principles, starting with number seven, which is design from patterns down to details. Cool. That already sounds quite different to everything we've talked about. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's a really nice way to look at what you can and can't change, but also the order in which you can and can't change or should change things. Mm. Okay. That'll be quite a deep one there. Shall we we jump into a song? I think we should. Let's chuck a little short one in here. So this one is called Up in the Clouds. You know, we had rain, we had sun, now we've got clouds. I'm doing pretty well with the sun choices. Uh, And this one's by Skeggs. I'm Councillor Chris Hill, Deputy Mayor of the City of Kingston, and you're listening to Radio Karen. We are back. And that was, once again, uh, Up in the Clouds by Skeggs. Cool. Cool band name. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) 
So let's keep on going. We've got a spotlight. Yes. We've got a spotlight on beetroot and radishes. I love beetroot um, and radishes both. And why? Why is because where are we? We can grow them all year round. We're pretty lucky in that sense here in Victoria. Yeah. Um, And they've got a huge amount of uses as well. So one of the things I love, you can plant beetroots any time of the year. You can plant radishes any time of the year. Um, Beets have the beet itself. Plus you can obviously pick the baby leaves. You can pop them in salads. Perfectly good to eat. You can um, eat as you thin as well, mm. uh, which is something that we will talk about as we go, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, radishes are fast growing. They are good in between other veggies mm. um, and it's a quick result. Uh, so it's great for growing with kids, nice and easy. You know, you can get 28-day radishes, um, throw them into salads. Also leaving them as flowers and mm. in letting them go to flower yeah. is, is can be really great as a pollinator, That's which it. we've done a few times. Yeah, Uh you know, there are spacing recommendations for all plants, of course, and certainly they're no different. Um, but the good thing about beets and radishes is they are stupidly forgiving. Mm. <laughs> so I have seen uh, in the past people having a lot of success with just scattering seed as if it was like grass seed, yep. you know, trying to patch a lawn um, and just raking it in, giving it a water, and then, as you said, thinning as you go. Uh or even just letting them go and only thin when you want to harvest. Yep, yep. You don't even have to thin them out uh, when they are sort of taking off. So it is a really good confidence builder. Mm. I think those plants that give you a nice, big, juicy something yep. but are really easy uh, are those confidence builders, you know. Um, if you're struggling with tomatoes and all these other things that can be a bit finicky, maybe maybe give these ones a go. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, growing beets. Growing beets. Beetroot is tasty, super easy to grow. Um, unlike something like asparagus, it's something you can grow pretty much in any soil, uh, even heavy clay. Yep. Uh, add a bit of compost to the soil and throw around some complete organic fertilizer to enrich the soil. And when we're talking about spacing with beetroot, we want to space our rows about 30 centimetres apart Mm. and plant seeds uh, every 10 centimetres or so. Uh, And not too deep, just the thumb, about there, 1.5 centimetres. Eventually thin them out as we go as well. So you can just remember we can eat our thinnings um, and give them a bit of steam if we want to. You can steam them up. You can just put them straight into salad. All all works and all works very well. That's it. I mean, when you go to the supermarket and you see the little bunches of baby beetroot, it's the same as yep. the big beetroot. Yep. Just harvested a little bit earlier. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, a, a lot of those ones, you know, you can microgreens, as we mentioned a little while ago, if we let them grow up and we allowed them to be spaced correctly, they'll grow into bigger just, plants. They'll just be plants, yeah. <laughs> uh, beetroot, it takes about 15 weeks to crop. Um, and left in the ground after that, it can become a little bit woody. Mm. Again, you know, if we're going to seed and that sort of thing. A beetroot rarely suffer from problems. Uh, and if you are getting misshapen or yellowing leaves, chances are you've got a bit of a mineral deficiency. Yep. So this you can usually be attributed to your pH and um, getting back to neutral should so- solve the problem. We'll touch on the pH thing again when we do nutrient deficiencies, yes. the nutrient deficiency episode because often... It's a good little side note. I'll jump in. 
sometimes people uh, misdiagnose their plants as having a particular deficiency, mm-hmm. but it's actually a pH issue first. Mm. Uh, and if you fix the pH issue, the mineral deficiency, as I said, might make the minerals that are already actually there available to your plant. Mm. So it's a good little note there. Get your soil back to neutral <laughs> by adding organic matter. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, to beetroot, I'm going to throw. I'm going to take it just a, a tiny step to the side from beetroot. Still in the beetroot family, okay. and I'm going to throw a couple of words at you, Henry. Mango wurzel. Gesundheit. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, <laughs> what is that? That sounds like a Harry Potter potion ingredient. Yeah, it certainly does. <laughs> Two pinches of mango wurzel, please. Uh, so this is a very close relative to the beetroot. Mango wurzel or mangold wurzel, also called mangold, mangle beet, field beet, fodder beet or root of scarcity. That's the coolest name I've ever seen for a plant. Root of scarcity. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, is It's a cultivated root vegetable. Uh, it is a variety of the beta vulgaris, same species that also contains the red beets, the sugar beet varieties, and the cultivar group is named Crassa group. Right. So just wanted to throw that one out there. So this one specifically for the, the mango wurzel, it is a bit of a larger one. Um, I think it's going to be originating from Germanic areas, yeah. going by the name. And uh, I was having a look in during or after the war, World War One, and where people were eating quite a lot of beets because they are mm. super healthy for you, uh, is that <clears throat> there was almost like reliance on these sorts of things, uh, the vegetables to keep people sustained. Yeah. Um, so mango wurzel, check it out. See if you can find it. It does grow quite big, um, but another root vegetable that you can treat like beetroot. I like big beets and hmm? I cannot lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a fun beetroot fact here. So some people listening might be like, oh, Henry, beetroot is gross. Why would you want me to grow this muddy, disgusting thing that tastes like dirt? Fair enough. Uh, I get that. So the muddy, earthy flavor of beetroot comes from uh, the molecule geosmin, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pentene, I believe, or one of those words, but geosmin and Typically what you will find is that the red, purple, fleshed beets or beetroots, uh, the the common ones that you see at the supermarket, have a much higher concentration of that compound than the other kind that you don't really see, uh, which is the golden beets. Uh, Golden beets are very common though in terms of if you go and buy seeds, there's usually a golden beet variety and I've got some that I'm going to – sorry, they're in the ground already. I'm just waiting on them to, to start forming their their bulb or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. their, their root, sorry. Yep. Um, so, yeah, if you are looking to get a little bit into the world of beets but you are not a huge fan of that flavor, give golden beets a go. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get a much milder, sort of more savory, closer to like sweet potato-y kind of mm-hmm. vibe. Okay. Yep. That's how I taste it personally. It's different for everyone. But, yeah, it won't taste as much like dirt. Have you have you ever seen or checked out health benefits beetroot? No, Google health benefits beetroot. Mm. I'm well, sure there's plenty, right? Heaps, mm. heaps and heaps. Um, and you know they're going through from helping the liver, um, being the the blood filter of your body. Um, yeah, right. Talking about neuroplasticity, uh, lots of different stuff like that. So 
a very healthy thing for you as well, beets, and which yeah. is why I think a lot of people did go back and rely on them for a good amounts of nutrients and things. Mm. That's usually a good rule of thumb. I mean, vegetables, uh, you know, root crops, whatever it is that have, you know, a really rich dark colour, um, usually are pretty good for you. They have, they have good stuff than just maybe a regular potato, <laughs> you know, just white flesh. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that, that's beetroots. Let's go to radishes. So radishes obviously are very similar to beets, completely different family, but um, great for breaking up tough soils. You can plant them pretty much in the exact same way on mass, uh, thin them over time. Um, so you can have the baby radish. Again, you know, if you go to the supermarket, you're going to find baby radishes. If those were thinned out a little bit uh, and allowed to grow, they would become quite large. Uh, interesting point here as well is, is radish seeds are a compound seed. So when you get them out of the packet, they're actually like a seed pod with, you know, two to four or two to five seeds in there. They're quite large yeah. radish seeds and beetroot seeds. Yeah, and then when you plant them, you're automatically going to get a few coming out of that one thing that you plant and then you can just leave them go. Or you can do what I do with my radishes is uh, I plant them pretty densely and then I just pull out a radish every now and again as I need it from a different one of these clumps yep. and then always leave one to just get as big as humanly possible and see see what I can do. Yeah, there's uh, yeah some radish varieties, as you mentioned, they can crop in as little as like 21 to 28 days. Mm. So it's incredibly fast considering what you're getting. Uh, so it's a good crop, again, for putting into gaps or if you're just waiting for some seedlings to size up at this time of year maybe. You've got your tomato seeds in your little hot box or your greenhouse and you want to get something in the ground there that you can pull out in you know a month, a month and a half. Put some radishes in. Yep. Why not? The good thing I love about radishes is there's a variety for everybody. So you've got the small French breakfast type radishes um, up to the giant daikon uh radish and i I think you saw the note right here i did i did um at the at down's community farm there was there's like one daikon i don't know if it's been harvested yet but this is a chonker this thing must be a (laughs) meter long under the ground it's so big (laughs) it's gone to seed and yet it's still the radish itself is still formed half of it's out of the ground half of it's in wild i think if you if you cut round slices off of that they'll be the size of a dinner plate it's it's so big um and everything in between. So, um, yeah, my personal favourite is the watermelon radish. Have you grown watermelon radish before? I have not, no. Super easy to grow, um, like all radishes. It has a sort of whitish, greenish tinged skin. The inside is white, but then the centre is like a dark red and it kind of striates out. Oh. It's almost like the iris of an eye. Yep. Not so much like a watermelon, as the name would imply, but it looks really beautiful, cut up, um, fresh. Or you can do what I do as well, which is I love to pickle them. Pickle Simple them? Simple pickle. Yep. Um, yeah, amazing. And actually this weekend I picked up um, at a farmer's market, street market in Emerald. I think it was in Emerald. Again, up in the Dandenongs. Uh, Spanish black radish, which yeah. I've never, never heard of. Cool. Uh, it's got a nice white flesh, like a daikon. Uh, but then the skin is, and it's around normal looking radish, but the skin is like jet black. Wow. I was like, oh, okay. It's going to look different. I'll give those a go, definitely. Uh, yeah, so that, that's my bit on radishes. Mm. Do you have anything to, uh, to add on to that? 
Well, just to add that um, obviously it's an edible root vegetable from the family Brassica say. It was first domesticated or believed to be domesticated in Asia and this is prior to Roman times, so going back a long time. I didn't realise it was in the Brassica family. Mm, Apparently there is still wild wild, uh, radish in in different parts of Asia and China. Um, And I just reflecting back to what you were mentioning a moment ago, love the different types and sizes. So uh, a couple of extra or added ones in there, French breakfast, um, the red ones with the white little tip, a little bit more elongated, um, scarlet rose. We've got white icicle. Um, sometimes with the bigger radishes, they can actually, if you leave them in too long, it can hollow out and uh, often that happen lose, with lose a bit of that taste as well. Mm. So I would actually recommend and go, just go in early. Go in early, as you were mentioning. Pick them as you need to. And they when taste- they're still small, mm. sweet, nice and compact, um, daikon, the list does go on. Um, I think probably the thing about with the radishes, you mentioned pickling um, and there's plenty of other ways to eat them, but having a think about what your plan is for them. Sometimes we go, oh, I'm so inspired to grow something and then you'll wind up with a lot of it and then you'll go, Mm, what am I going to use it for? Yeah, I can't keep giving radish to my neighbours. They think I'm crazy. <laughs> They'll be closing the doors as you come up. Um, so think about what you might use or what the plan might be for them. It mm, You could do salads, pickled, shredded, salted. Uh, one was super finely thin sliced in, like on a mandolin mm. and then salted, uh, popped into tacos or as a dressing, that sort of thing. So get creative with radishes and get them to use. That's it. So, yeah, get some of that in your garden, guys. Come on, guys and gals. Folks, I'm going to use the term folks, obviously. Um, Because, yeah, it's super easy to grow uh, big harvests, harvestable at basically any size. You can't go wrong. And healthy, healthy for you. And healthy. Oh, yeah, of course. They're healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Got to think about that too. Uh, But, yeah, before we get into our last section, into a bit bit of folklore... Bit of bit of myth busting. Uh, we'll go to our final song for the night, which is uh, an oldie, a classic here. Great Southern Land, Ice House by Ice House. Yes, I totally forgot this song existed until the other day. But here we go. Oi, 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 oi. IGA is shopping nights. IGA, where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker. And we are back. Once again, that was Ice House with Great Southern Land. And you are on the radio show. You are on the radio. (laughs) You're on the the radio radio show. Yeah, the gardening show on Radio Karen with Henry and... Brendan. There we go. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we had a quick little question that came in to tack on to that last section about beets and radishes from Maureen asking, are the leaves edible? Yes. Uh, You want to take this one? Yes. The simple answer is yes. Yes. Uh, Yes, you can. Radishes being part of the brassica family means they are entirely edible, like any brassica really. Mm. Um, Maybe there's an example that isn't, but- um, you can totally eat them. Uh, anything else to note about that? Probably just the tiniest of little caveats is mm. that with your radish specifically, beetroots we spoke about, totally fine. Yep. Radish leaves can be a bit prickly. 
Yeah. So yeah. they can be a bit furry. Um, if you're eating them raw, then it might give you a bit of a funny sort of a mouthfeel <laughs> yeah. whilst you're eating it. But if you, you want like to, <laughs> you can totally boil it up and cook it and, and happy days. Yeah. So go for it. Yeah. And chooks. Chooks are going to love it. That's yes. it. So, yeah. You know. Do, do with them what you will. Mm-hmm. So will your compost as well. Yes. <laughs> I will mention your compost will also like them. Thank you um, so much, Maureen. Thank you. All right. Myths. Myths. Myth busting. Folklore. Let's let's do it. I think gardening has a lot of myths. Mm. A lot of, uh, you know, I, I don't like the term old wives tale. It's a little bit gendered. But, you know, a lot of those old tales that, yeah, your mileage might vary mm. on, on a few of them. Uh, Interestingly, yeah. when I was having a look at some of these you know, common myths, some of the things that I'd heard about, there were a few in there that I actually kind of went, oh, no, but isn't that true? Yeah, <laughs> and, right, and it right. confused me. It stumped me. Um, <clears throat> so it was really valuable to have a look at and, and doing, uh, having a look into these. But mm. huge thank you again. Over the last couple of weeks and the last couple of episodes, Henry, you've been explaining things around coffee grounds, around wormwee, and I'm, I have no doubt that we'll continue to uncover uh, more along the roads and explore more mm. and hopefully myth bust them as well. Um, in a, in a four-second or a four-word recap, eggshells, onions, citrus in compass, compost is okay in small amounts, um, worm castings to make uh, worm tea, moist is the key, not drenched. Yep. Um, peeing on citrus, yes, but with many caveats. Yep. Um, and coffee grounds, in moderation, may not deter slugs and snails. Mm, correct. So those were a couple of quick recaps from the previous episodes. That's it. And look, uh, tell us, what myths have you come across or put to the test? If you mm. want to let us know, you can text in on 0493 uh, or just send in some general questions and we can answer them just before the end of the show as well. For sure. So shall I start? Go for it. <laughs> so yes. I've, I've put a few in here. I think you've got some in there as well, don't you? Uh, so first of all, uh, this is a pretty common one uh, and it's about cross-pollination. So, um, you know, the common thing is that, you know, my, my capsicums um, – will crossbreed with my chilies and then my chilies will be mild and my capsicums will be spicy because, uh, you know, they've, they've mixed together. And this is not true at all. Uh, within the current season okay, yes. is the point to make here. So you can absolutely um, grow multiple types of peppers and tomatoes and any kind of fruit right next to each other, usually with no issue in terms of the fruit being what you expect where it might be an issue or will be an issue potentially is uh, if you are saving that seed and then growing that seed on, that seed, if it's been cross-pollinated, will not be true to type. Right. Uh, and you might end up – you could end up with something amazing, by the way. How do you think new plants, are, new varieties are created? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, those crazy hot chilies that exist, pepper X and mm-hmm. all that, is just the result of crossbreeding in that way. But for the current season, you're totally fine. Um, you know, think about it. If this was true, then, you know, your poms, you know, your apples and your pears and many of your stone fruit, most of your stone fruit varieties would all be random crossbreeds because they actually require cross-pollination to, to bear fruit. So if you have a pink lady apple, for example, you are going to need some other specific variety of apple either in your yard or... You know that your neighbours have one, um, 
to actually produce pink lady apples. Mm. So, or, or a couple of plants. Or a couple of plants, exactly. So, yeah, not true unless you are saving seed. Um, the way to do this, if you do want to save seed, is to pick varieties that, ha- that flower at different times with no crossover and that way you know, bees aren't going to cross-pollinate them for you or keep them as far away as possible. Um, ideally, front yard, backyard, if you really want to grow two varieties that have the exact same flowering window, right. you want to save that seed. So that's if we're looking to save the seeds. If we're looking to save the seed. Yeah. If you're not concerned about that um, or you want to have a play with new varieties, by all means. So I guess that's when you're talking about taking things into really controlled environments, perhaps if you wanted to be growing or breeding something very specifically, you might be very conscious about what sort of other pollinators are coming in and how mm. to how to pollinate and to keep that separate. It's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating thought, but great point. You can get really deep on that, yeah. Um, so another one is you should top your peppers uh, for a better harvest. So topping is typically done when the plant is very young, so maybe oh, under 30 centimetres tall and just cutting it off at the top. And what this does, of course, it's pruning. So you are forcing it to branch out and become bushier and that means more fruiting potential. Yes, that's true. It will do that. But in reality, the benefits of topping peppers especially are wildly overstated from the research that I've done and at least in my experience. More often than not, the smaller varieties of peppers, so it might be your little Thai bird's eye chilies uh, or your padron peppers if you're into Spanish cooking, um, are going to crop really well if you start your seedlings early, you know, in a greenhouse or a hotbox to the point where you might not even be able to use them all anyway. So there's no real benefit in bumping that harvest. Mm. Um, Yeah, but your mileage might vary. For larger varieties that might only have a a few fruit per plant, this will be your capsicums, especially your big varieties of capsicum. (coughs) Sorry. The time that the plant is taking to heal and put out that extra growth can almost cancel out the benefit of having two liters. You're better off just planting more plants. Okay. Yeah, I can I can deal with that Peppers one. Let's plant cheap. more stuff. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. So anyway, again, your mileage might vary, but in my experience and um, many gardeners will tell you that it's not needed, uh, topping your peppers. Great. So no. There you go. Uh, I've got a couple more and Bring then it. I'll drop it over to you. So a quick one here. So some varieties of houseplant can purify the air in your home. Uh, that sounds lovely, but unfortunately, <laughs> false. <laughs> um, yes, they do uh, to an extent, but the amount that they purify your air is is in most cases negligible, mm. um, absolutely negligible. It, you know, scientifically, yes, plants produce oxygen and they you know can absorb different compounds in the air and all that sort of stuff, but. Um, the amount of leaf matter that you would need to have an appreciable benefit would essentially render your house useless as a living space. You would be <laughs> every room would be a crammed greenhouse room, wall to wall, wall to wall, green walls, jungle. Yep. You live in a jungle, and even then, the benefit is probably not even worth your time. <laughs> but hey, 
you know, houseplants can be beautiful. Sure. Of course. You know, there's other benefits. Uh, and finally, um, yeah, finally, uh, you should plant specific um, – you should plant, sorry, at specific times on the lunar calendar to increase plant health and harvest. So this is called moon planting mm. um, or lunar planting. Very, very ancient way of gardening or a way of doing agriculture, I guess. And it really just focuses on um, doing all of your garden tasks that we be planting, repotting, watering, fertilizing during specific phases of the moon. So some people absolutely swear by this, you know, uh, and the thought behind it or the, the, the science inverted commas behind it is, of course, to do with the tides and where soil, where moisture sits in the soil during different gravitational pull. So you think about tides. Mm -hmm. It's the tides at a small garden scale Mm. and using that to our benefit, perhaps to encourage plants to push roots further down, um, to seek water, more so at one time than another. There's a little bit of a scientific brain in in here that's kind of grasping at the concepts there and trying to validate it. It's a bit of a stretch on that scale. I do I do like the explanation uh, though. I do like this this latter yeah. part, the validation. Yeah. I mean the effectiveness of this is unfortunately, and I do say unfortunately, um not supported by science. Really. But I put this into the kind of positive placebo sort of category, mm. much like astrology. Sorry anyone that's into astrology. Uh this is just my personal belief this is my personal opinion but you know i think there is benefit to moon planting in that if you believe it and therefore you are being thoughtful Mm. and actually consistent in your gardening yep of course that's going to have a benefit more so than if you just have a haphazard approach to like caring for your plants or watering, you mm. know, if you're like, oh yeah, I'll just do a bit of this, do that. If you're like, no, I, it's time to water or it's time to fertilize. Having anything that helps you keep that rhythm is going to produce a benefit, but it's that that is doing the benefit, not the your, your, <laughs> where the mood happens to your be. Your diligence, your diligence, your diligence and, diligence. and uh, motivation yeah. in the garden. That's it. So uh, unfortunately, look, and again, this is one that gardeners will swear by. Mm-hmm. And if it works for you, of course, do it. Why not? I think it's cool. Like just having a big moon chart and, you know, doing certain things even at night, you sure. know, yep. <laughs> planting things at midnight or whatever. Uh, yeah. If it works for you, go for it. But Positive placebo. It's actually, it's a really good way of looking at it as well because mm. it doesn't necessarily um, <clears throat> take the approach. It, it, it gives you space to still be. Yeah. yeah, if you were into into those sorts of things, and um, then it still allows you to be there. But That's it. Uh, yeah, I like the I like the explanation. Brilliant, awesome. I think you got one as well. I do, I do. Um, sunshine focused through water droplets will burn leaves. Oh, I've heard this one so many times. Yes, <laughs> I believed it for a long, long time. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just fess up a little bit. Yeah, there was a part of me that believed it as well, and yeah. often, and uh, when I, 
when I reflected back on it, I, I think I considered that it actually wasn't necessarily burning the leaves, but maybe wilting, uh, helping to wilt on mm. a particularly hot day of getting too much moisture onto the leaf surface yeah. and and it effectively wilting as a result of that, but not burning. Yeah. So this one, the, it's actually, we're going to myth bust this one. Um, the diffused rays of the sun aren't really powerful enough to cause burning. Um, and if they, if that was the case, then, um, and, and water crop droplets did burn leaves, then there'd be lots of farmers who are encountering huge losses after daytime rainstorms. <laughs> yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's the thing that made me think about it. Like, oh. Hold on, <laughs> it rains all the time. <laughs> so just a few yeah. tips with the watering is obviously to water in the morning and in the evening, a lower evaporation rate and the potential to reduce the foliar diseases that occur and that can occur when, when you've got stuff that's overly wet. So yep. drenched leaves, dripping leaves, that sort of thing. And it's sitting moist overnight is the mm. big one where you can actually get fungal problems and things like that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I think for me... Why I thought this might be true, and the reason why it might itself not even be true, but you know, growing up, I learned that you know it, it's a lot easier to get sunburned when you've been swimming because mm. your skin is wet and it magnifies the sun. Ah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's true either. Um, but you know, it encouraged me to put on sunscreen. So, yep. yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to go with the other the, with the myth bust on that one as well, and and probably think that it's that cool feeling of the water against your skin making you not necessarily feel so hot or like you're burning at the time <laughs> when you're maybe you're cooked. actually burning. <laughs> uh, let's throw that one out there, and you know I would I I'm going to implore and encourage people to be sending in messages and telling us about their myths um, and things that they've busted and they've come to. Uh, figure out or they've yep. come to say to validate if you've known some that that are genuine and true mm. bring it on yeah i want to know about it if it makes you feel good and it makes you garden who am i sure who am i to yeah. tell you that you should stop doing it unless it is actively damaging your plants mm. which a lot of these things aren't they just no. maybe a waste of time but <laughs> that's, that's for each to decide so that is about it for another episode of the gardening show. Thank you so much, everybody, for staying with us. We have gone, we've gone pretty long. I guess we started so, a little bit late. We started a bit late, so I think that's doing, okay. We did some good time. Mm. Um, what is coming up in the next show? So we've got some. We're going to do some Q and A's from online posts. Yes. So sort of almost related um, to this. I uh, think we've just done with myth busting, but also just general questions that people are asking. Yeah, we spoke um, about it the other week. Mm. We kind of popped it to the side and I've got a few particular examples that I'm looking forward to because, again, it's stuff that I've heard lots and lots of times or yeah. have seen time and time again, people posting these sorts of pictures um, and questions. So let's get into that. Definitely. We're going to do a spotlight on edible weeds. So if you really suck at gardening... <laughs> Or, you know, you just want to um, increase the amount of food that you can provide for your family. Guess what? Uh, it grows everywhere. Mm. Food literally grows out of the pavement. So we'll talk a little bit as much as we can without showing pictures about common edible weeds uh, in in this area and, and everywhere. I've got one that just came to mind, which I ate on the weekend. And, oh, yeah. uh I'll, I'll drop it next week, so hang around next week. Awesome. I'll have a good book recommendation for that one as well. Nice. Uh, 
the seventh permaculture principle. So design from patterns to details. Uh, so this is where it starts to get deep and less obvious, uh, but huge benefits if you uh, design gardens with this stuff in mind. Love it. Looking forward to that. And less effort, I will <laughs> say as well. And then uh, finally, spring is just around the corner. It is. So it is getting it, into the spring of things. Getting into the spring of things. We're going to talk spring. Um, and obviously just a quick note, I mentioned it before, but cherry blossoms are starting to bloom. All A lot of those fruit trees there, if you just go and have a look at the buds on the trees, I went and checked out the plums and apricots the other day. Mm. And they're, they're just right there, ready to go. So awesome. a um, bit of warmer weather recently, especially today as well, yeah. um, might encourage a few of those plants to just bust out a little bit early. But spring is is just around the corner. I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm very excited to start putting some tomatoes into the ground. Yep. My favourite vegetable. Yep. Some peppers, um, cucumbers, loofah, all the nice. stuff we're talking about. Amaranth. amaranth. Red, red amaranth. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, events. Yep. On the events page, we've got a... So, I was having a look around at a few different things, a little bit broader um, than just the Frankston area. But what I wanted to mention is <coughs> there are monthly tours at Meliodora, uh, which is a permaculture tour. There's one happening in September. There's a few tickets online. Um, and if you have a look through uh, Permaculture Victoria and through the events page there... Um, uh, actually, that one was a separate one, sorry. Meliodora was part of the Holmgren, Holmgren Farm. Yep. Uh, and by all means, have a look at this. But on the Permaculture Victoria side, Ringwood, Bayswater and Mulrabark are all having events in the next food swap events in the next mm. uh, few weeks coming up. And another one which was called Ellendale Farm, which is in Eltham. And on the 2nd of September, they're doing a home composting for beginners and that's a free a free uh, event. So by all means, jump online if any of those sorts of things mm. uh, float your boat and have a look for things where you might need to register. Obviously, check if you do need to register and book tickets beforehand as opposed to just rocking up, but <coughs> there's definitely some stuff happening around Victoria and around Melbourne. Yeah, uh, a few notes on that as well for me. So Meliodora, <laughs> for those that aren't uh, aware, is, yeah, the – I think it's a Daker – um, property of, um, yeah, Holmgren, David Holmgren, the co-creator of permaculture. And if you want crazy garden envy, <laughs> mm. <laughs> this is the place to go. You, are, you will see some absolutely – you will see permaculture perfectly in practice. Yeah. Um, it is, is, is a great day out. I heavily encourage anyone, even if you're not, yeah, permaculture sounds a bit hippie, go there just for a great garden tour and to really learn about what's possible on a relatively small, what you might call a lifestyle block. Uh, and in terms of the Permaculture Victoria events, yes, um, the great thing about Permaculture Victoria is they have lots of different chapters, I guess you could say, um, sort of sub-organizations. So we have down this way the... Um, Mornington Peninsula Permaculture Network uh, that also run uh, what I'm a part of now and we run uh, we run events every month as well. So you can definitely check out that. Uh, go on Facebook, Friends of the Mornington Peninsula Permaculture Network group uh, and you'll, you'll see the events there. Uh, but yeah, definitely take a look. There's always some good stuff on with the Permaculture Victoria there. 
that used to be, I think they are having a pause at the moment or I'm not sure what's going on, but there was also a Karam chapter uh-huh. of Permaculture Victoria. I think it's Permaculture Karam or something it's called. Um, so, yeah, something to keep an eye on in case that starts up again in the future. Nice. Yeah. And I was just looking as well with David Holmgren. It's Sue Dennett, his partner. She's she's one of my favourite permaculture people, an absolute 100% legend. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. If you get a chance to, to meet the two of them, um, which I'm sure you would on the tour, uh, yeah, they're just such beautiful, welcoming, lovely people and and immense fountains of knowledge mm. as well. Yep. So, yeah. Cool. That is it. That's it for our show. Don't forget to send us through any gardening questions for next week, uh, 0493-213-831 or email us at the new email address, thegardeningshowradio at gmail.com. That's it. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Have a great couple of weeks and, uh, yeah, get into your gardens. Absolutely. That's that's it. I actually haven't queued up the theme song, so if you just want to talk for a little bit longer. <laughs> that, that is all right. <laughs> all right. See you in a few weeks, everybody. Cheers. Take care.